Hey, this is Lexi. This is Ari. And you're listening to Hotel Earth. Like to extend our stay and upgrade. <laughs> okay. <laughs> We have to express some grievances at the beginning of this fucking recording. So first and foremost, you're probably going to hear a lot of background noise. We're sorry about it. We can't do anything about it. We're both peeved, but it is what it is. It'd be like that sometimes. It'd be like that sometimes. Sometimes, you know, your studio just is locked for no reason and you can't get in. And then you have to deal with the custodian yelling at her cousin on the phone really, really loud while you're trying to record something really important. But it happens. You know what? She she just she didn't get the memo. That's okay. Um, we're not mad at her. No, it's also the week before Christmas, and anyone who celebrate Jesus Christmas. <laughs> oh I'm about ready. It is fucking chaotic to it shove is- my own. <laughs> it's finally quiet. You Holy can hear shit. a pin drop now. Oh. Listen. The dichotomy of this recording. Listen today. We're both a little annoyed. So yeah. if you hear it in our tone, if you hear the sass, we apologize. It's not directed at today's topic. It's I, not directed no. at anyone. It no. is just because life is just kind of been bending us over today. Specifically before Christmas, it's uh, giving us a The cold. week before Christmas, I low-key always feel like this a little bit. It's not always work-related. Sometimes it's just like life. Like I'm just annoyed. I resonate. Anyways. I fucking hate the number of times I say the word resonate. I need to pick a new word. Do you ever get like that? You like rely too heavily on a, a set of words. Yeah. I need that, to expand my vernacular. That definitely happens to me. For sure. I like when my syntax is consistent, but my vocabulary is varying. So I'm just not super quick sometimes because I live in fairy daydream land. It's like when I'm trying to articulate. That's why this podcasting has been a very, um, very interesting endeavor of mine because I don't come to the point really quick <laughs> uh, or very quickly. I'm very much like I like my, my thoughts are formulated quite well in my head, and then when I go to s- speak, it takes me about 25 minutes to say like I saw the cat run. So um, <laughs> um, it's okay. I say dumb shit. I think my problem is that my brain works to it works at a faster rate than my mouth does because I say stupid shit like um, the other day I I wanted my seat to be warmer and so I said I needed to turn on my heat seaters and I saw nothing wrong with that statement. The reason I'm laughing is because when I first heard heat seaters I quite honestly didn't hear anything wrong with it so I'm glad that you and I operate on the same I feel like we do. I feel like we do. It's a beautiful thing. That's why this podcast works so well. It's and fun. why this conversation that we had was nice so fun. Nice segue. Nice segue, Lexi. Segue into today's topic. We are talking about nuclear energy today. We certainly are. Yes. This, well, this was a really fun conversation. We we kind of already... we So we had a really great conversation with um, our guest today, John Moorhead. We had, and you guys may recognize that last name. 
we had a really great conversation with him about he's a nuclear energy expert we talked all things um fission versus fusion advantages disadvantages um and more we even talked about some nuclear disasters that you all might be familiar with Mm -hmm. but um in that conversation lexi and i learned so much we thought it was and lexi um lexi's grown up around these conversations yeah so you maybe didn't learn quite as much as i did maybe you've heard this stuff a bunch of times i don't know well it's interesting because i've sat down and asked my dad questions throughout the years but never in a way that we did for this conversation so Mm -hmm. i certainly heard things for the first time and i was the research that we did to prepare for the interview definitely gave me some insight to statistics i just wasn't aware of i was shocked I was shocked. And that is coming from someone who does her absolute best to keep up with the environmental science conversation and the happenings. And I was quite shocked about how often nuclear energy is used, for example. I was shocked about how the process actually works. Mm -hmm. Um, I was shocked at the differences between fission versus fusion not um not the scientific differences but the differences in how they produce energy and the repercussions that each has or doesn't have yeah i was um anyway we're at in the research with uh yeah both of those things because um when this recording is released you all will have seen hopefully the reel that ariana made about the nuclear fusion breakthrough freaking better have so We'll talk a little bit more about fusion and fission here in a minute in the podcast, but we did want to just talk briefly about why nuclear energy is so important, aside from the conversation that we did have with my dad. Um, One of those reasons is that it is America's third largest energy producer, and it creates about 20% of electricity in the U.S. That is one of the stats that shocked me. I had no idea that it was producing a fifth of the U.S.'s energy. That's some quick fucking maths. My, I swear, you say something, you say things sometimes, often, like a lot of times, and my little brain just goes, Whoa, wow, she's crazy. <laughs> I'm the she's math whiz, crazy. but to be yeah. to be completely fair, 20% isn't really hard to just zoom to a fraction. You know what I mean? Well, for some people, it's apparently maybe a little bit more difficult, but I I'll shut the fuck on. up. I'll shut the fuck up. The other thing that we learned in doing this research and something I knew, but I didn't know that I knew it. So nuclear energy is the most reliable energy source in America because the power, partly because the plants are designed to run 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Another fact that totally shocked me. And I knew that they ran 24-7, but I guess it just never clicked in my brain that other energy sources don't have that luxury. For instance, the sun doesn't always shine, wind doesn't always blow, and hydropower plants like we've talked about in other episodes also rely on different varying currents to be able to do what they do. Correct. Yeah. I mean, nuclear energy has a lot of... um, not only, I'm not going to say just differences because obviously it's very different than other forms of energy, which we'll probably talk about. I guess now's a good time. How uh, I would love Lex to explain why she thinks it doesn't fall under the renewable energy category. It is different than other forms of energy. However, um, it also has so much potential to be great. Right. It has potential to be great. It has a t- it has potential to be uh, as Lex said the she best. she she did just you know uh, give shout to the little reel I made on Instagram 
about fission versus fusion and why the fusion breakthrough is so huge. Fusion is honestly just something that could be the future. The future and probably is the one thing that we should all be kind of looking toward to get us out of the fossil fuel grave we've dug ourselves in. For sure. And I mean, to circle back to your question, I don't think that current nuclear energy can be constituted as renewable because renewable energy needs to be energy from a source that is not depleted when used. And when you use um, the fuel for nuclear fission, you are depleting it. The other kicker is that renewable energy are typically naturally, the resources are typically naturally replenished on a human timescale. And that's just not the case for these particular materials. Um, but if we were able to successfully recreate and stabilize fusion, mm-hmm. absolutely it'd be a renewable energy. In the case that you, in case you haven't seen the real on Hotel Earth Podcasts um, Instagram, fusion essentially is the exact same process as creating a star. Mm-hmm. It releases an everlasting abundant amount of energy as long as it can be sustained. as long as it can yeah. be uh, sustained exactly and as long as we can stabilize that reaction um, for long endless periods of time that amount of the amount of energy that comes out of it is endless <laughs> it's, yeah. and it's abundant and it's um, clean clean there's no there's no radioactive waste associated yeah there's no emissions yeah um, and it lasts for literally ever so that is, as Lexi said, that is the future. Yeah. That's what we should be working toward. And that big breakthrough that happened um, with researchers in California is is huge news in the nuclear world, or in the energy world. Most definitely. But without further ado, we're going to go ahead and roll the tapes, let you all listen in on the conversation. We really hope you guys enjoy the conversation we had with Mr. Moorhead. Okay. Hi, Lex. Hi, Ari. <laughs> um, so we've got a special guest speaker with us today. Which I'm very we do, about. we do. So um, we'd like to one say thank you for being on the show. We're really excited to have another guest speaker. We yes. haven't had anyone on since Clarissa. Um, she did a great job. So you're gonna have to. You have a lot to live up to, John. <laughs> That's a pretty high standard. It's a very high I can, standard. I <laughs> don't know if I can meet that, but I will try. Well, fingers crossed. Well, we, I'm we definitely, have faith in you. I'm definitely excited for today's conversation, for sure. Likewise. Uh, so for those of you who don't know, the guest speaker today is John Moorhead, which is my dad. And we have been talking about this particular topic in our household for as long as I can remember. <laughs> I've done school papers on it and personally interviewed you. So You're not sick of it already? No. <laughs> it's one of those conversations where just when you think you've heard it all, something else pops up. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'd like to just really quickly talk about your credibility as a guest speaker. Obviously, here at Hotel Earth, we think that that is super important. Um, so how long have you worked in the industry? Well, I started out working for the Department of Energy, um, oh, 36, 37 years ago. Wow. And uh, that was not uh, commercial nuclear power. That was that was dealing with uh, 
uh, radiological uh, waste uh, handling and disposal. But about uh, 16 years ago, I moved over from that world into the uh, commercial nuclear power world. And so that's what I've been doing as, as my profession for the last 16 plus years. And it's been uh, very, uh, very interesting, very rewarding uh, in terms of just some of the experiences I've had, some of the people I've met, some of the things we've been able to, to accomplish. So amazing. A lot, of, a lot of things going on. It's very exciting. So would you mind just briefly explaining to our listeners what commercial nuclear power is? I don't I'm not sure that um that they will 100% grasp the difference between that and maybe what you were doing before with nuclear waste disposal handling. So would you mind clarifying that for us? Sure. Yeah, commercial nuclear power really deals with producing uh, electricity. It's a, it's a production of electricity for, for the power grids of various uh, nations. And um, it's to uh, obviously supply a very uh, vital resource for uh, for for uh, communities and for for nations all over the world right and, right uh, and it's um uh it doesn't it doesn't uh, deal with uh, weapons production it doesn't deal with um necessarily with uh some of like the medical um uses that you think about for uh, radiological materials but uh it, uh, okay. it is a, a very uh very important contributor to electrical production all over the world yeah, that definitely helps clarify things. Thank you. Yeah. Thank yeah. you for clarifying that you don't well, even, you don't deal with weapons. <laughs> yeah, well, for sure. But also, um, you know, I feel like the nuclear power is kind of one of those topics for a lot of I was gonna say Americans, but people in general who they don't really they don't really um it's kind of one of those like the vast unknowns, like it's like a deep ocean of unknown. I just feel like a lot of people they, they associate nuclear power with like nuclear meltdown, maybe, and they don't quite understand exactly uh, what, um, you know, what the Department of Energy or what people, you know, like you that were working in it for so long, were really trying to accomplish. So um, I think it's, it's an important thing to, you know, kind of clarify that and get it straight that, well, and we'll, we'll talk about this later in our, this podcast too, that nuclear energy isn't necessarily like just about scary big meltdowns and they're not just trying to make Chernobyl shows about it you know like there's a <laughs> there are a lot there is a lot that goes that goes into it so um let's take it back a little bit I want to learn I mean I I've met you on multiple occasions and I've had the pleasure of talking to you about numerous different things never nuclear power though so I'm excited about that but what um where, like where did you go to school like what got you into nuclear energy well, uh, as a very young person, I uh, attended Penn State University, and uh, one of the programs they offered was uh, uh, an associate program in nuclear engineering. So I, I took that uh, right out of high school. And then uh, later in life, um, I decided I wanted to get more involved with other aspects of nuclear facilities in general. So I got into uh, uh, you know the electrical and mechanical aspects of operating various facilities, not necessarily commercial power facilities, but just facilities in general. Okay. And so I, I got a uh, degree in electrical mechanical engineering as well. And then as the years went on and I got bored with operating different facilities, <laughs> I got into project management. So now I'm a certified uh, project management professional. And, uh, that's That's really what I deal with. Uh, mostly on day-to-day -day basis is, is uh, various uh, projects that make changes to uh, commercial nuclear power plants. Awesome. So you've probably been involved with some really, um, really big decision-making um, as a project manager, I imagine. 
Yeah, we we do things that that really uh, try to make the uh, the industry number one safer. Right. Uh, that's always that's always first. Uh, we can't do anything unless we're at least as safe as where we were before. But really, our goal is to be safer, uh, better. Um, you know, we're always looking at uh, coming up with better materials, uh, better uh, analyses, so we get a, a, a better answer, a more refined answer to, to certain questions and certain analyses. So, yeah, it's awesome. always always trying to always trying to make improvements, and and it's improvements mostly in safety and then reliability. Awesome. So, I know from personal experience that you travel all over the world. In fact, I was supposed to go to Spain with my dad. This is probably one of the most formative lessons I've had. I was supposed to go to Spain with my dad for a week when I was in eighth grade, and I was hell bent on getting an, a perfect attendance award. So I told him I couldn't go. Are you crazy? Oh, it gets better. No more than six hours after his plane took off, we got four feet of snow and school got canceled for the entire week. And you know, we want to know what the absolute cherry on top was. I didn't even get the damn award because I got sent home early for a half day one time. So from that point on, I had to miss at least a minimum of 15 days of school a year just to make up for it, you know? You, that, that easily could be one of your gravest mistakes you've ever made. Yeah, it's <laughs> definitely in the top five. But just skip out you know, on a week in Spain. I know, crazy. crazy. But that being said, um, is your work more concentrated in the u.s or internationally like what is the split for you now now it's it's mostly in the united states however um uh, we are trying to make inroads uh, internationally more and more um with uh, uh some of the eastern european central european nations um and uh even uh brazil and just you know really all over the world um just trying to to uh, help those those uh, countries out, help their their electrical utilities uh, come up with uh, you know, new plants, better plants, better. That fuel. excites me. <laughs> that uh, you guys can hear my bias a little bit, but that excites me. <laughs> that um that it's um you know that countries are you know utilizing globalization to work together on not just nuclear energy, but it's overall, it's a fight toward um, the transition away from fossil fuels inevitably. Right. But obviously you guys are concentrating in nuclear energy, which is, which is awesome. But yeah, I'm, I'm happy to hear that it's, it's um, becoming a widespread sort of endeavor among all. It is. It really is. But what exactly does nuclear energy mean like what can we can you explain what nuclear energy actually is yeah actually it's 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 a throwback to the uh the original uh power plants that were built in in the united states and basically all over the world uh, that relied on steam generation uh the oh. the traditional you know 100 year old plus power plant it uh it has something that makes heat that boils water the water makes steam, the steam spins a turbine, mm -hmm. the turbine then spins a generator and makes alternating current electricity. Thank mm -hmm. you, Nikola Tesla. And uh, <laughs> it goes out Shout out. high distances at, at high voltages and is, is used in, in uh, homes and businesses. So uh, that's, that's really what it is. It's just, it's a way to make a uh, way to make steam and a way to make electricity. Wow. So that's the, that's the 
the pretty a pretty like um simple mechanism when you think about it. well ideally you know in in theory it sounds simple but what's what what are the components like how how do we bring about the steam <laughs> well you have um you have a uh what we call a core which is made of uh fuel rods which are uh they contain uranium um and basically we have layers of what i'll call layers of protection or or uh, uh layers of of um uh, ways to to contain and control the, okay. uh, the plant. So the, you have pellets, and the mm -hmm. pellets are able to uh, hold much of the material inside them. So the the uranium, as it splits, it makes waste products. But a lot of that waste product really just gets trapped inside that fuel pellet, so it doesn't have a way to get out. And then you have another boundary where you have um, the uh, the cladding, the fuel rod cladding that, that surrounds the pellet. So it's really it's this pellet's encased in a fuel rod, so it can't get out of the fuel rod, and it's uh, uh, transmitting its heat through the fuel rod to the water. And then the water uh, either goes into uh, directly into a turbine in a boiling water reactor or a okay. pressurized water reactor. It just goes into a great big heat exchanger and uh, it makes steam that way. And then the the actual water is also kept in uh, it's kept under pressure, so it uh, it doesn't it doesn't escape. It's gets trapped within piping and vessels, so okay. it's kept in a in a closed loop. And uh, that's another layer. Uh, we we call that the uh, the uh, you know the, the reactor coolant system. That's that's another boundary. And then that is all inside of uh, typically a what we call a containment structure or containment dome. And that is if, if there is a breach of the reactor coolant system, so the water comes out of the reactor coolant system, it's going to get trapped inside of this containment building and it's not going to be able to get out into the environment. So those are layers of, of protection that we have built into the design of the plant to help maintain safety. Oh, okay. And so that kind of works into like, kind of i guess prohibiting waste of to, like from entering the environment but like to avoid cleanup procedure just to kind of avoid it at the source there like capture it at the source sort of yeah absolutely i mean the last thing you want is a mess you don't want you don't want radioactive material out in the environment um because it's it's a mess you just you don't mm -hmm. want it there once you want to keep it as confined and condensed as you possibly can so that you have a clean environment that's right. that's that's very key for our industry well it's important for for um humans as we try to adopt this this type of energy that we understand the safety protocols and ensure that it's safe for us to live with right that's yeah. probably that's the main concern of um of all energy sources at, at large when you think about it i mean one of the major issues with fossil fuels at the moment is the emissions related not only because they're bad for the environment because they're bad for it's it's a public health crisis as well, so sure. it's important that we address those kind of safety concerns as we transition to other energy alternatives as well. And a lot of these facilities, correct me if I'm wrong, they've been around for a really long. I and mean, you don't have to get into it too much now because we're going to talk about it again later. But these facilities have been operating for decades, mostly. Oh, right? yeah, absolutely. Most most of the uh, power plants in the United States have been operating since the 1970s or 80s. Wow. So these these are decades old facilities. Um, the, we we have two new uh, power plants coming online in Georgia, 
And so in the next year or two, those will be fully operational. Okay. So we're, we're, we're very excited about that, but uh, yeah, they can run for decades. And uh, um, again, that's one of the things that, that we deal with is trying to uh, uh, get the, the license extended to continue to operate these uh, very valuable assets yeah. for more years and get and more these, benefit out of them. These facilities that have been operating for decades, they're using the exact same mechanism that they've been from the start. Like nothing, nothing about the, about the energy capture or anything has changed, right? Like it's all stayed the same. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, correct. The only thing we change is we, we change the fuel um, that's changed periodically um, some of the components um, were changed years ago. Uh, steam generators, for example, was a big component that were changed out. But what we did was we took an old design and we replaced it with a new design, new materials, new structural designs. So they're much more physically robust and right. uh, more reliable. So okay. again, we we got better. We we took something old and we replaced it with something new and got and got a better design and a better product out of it. So okay. yeah, but but the containment, it's the same containment building. It's the same reactor pressure vessel. Um, uh, just- uh, That's just, that's really interesting to know because I feel like that's another, that's kind of another important thing when thinking about an energy source is how much updating and how much, uh, how much um, extra research is gonna be required to go into it for it to become as productive as it can be for people for people to use as like a, as a power grid. So I think that's that's really interesting to note that it doesn't really, it's been operating the same pretty much for decades. So it may be not, I mean, obviously there's nothing wrong with putting research toward making things better, but it maybe doesn't require too much um, changes to the system or how, how it's been operating. Yeah, and a lot of it comes from the care of the facility and the inspections, which we'll talk about more later too, because this is obviously a highly regulated industry. The, the NRC does not let anything yeah. slide. <laughs> no, no, they, they absolutely do not. Uh, that, that is not that is not tolerated. <laughs> Nothing slides. <laughs> and it shouldn't. Like like you said before, safety is is number one. And you know, it sounds when I'm picturing these facilities, I know that the the pellets themselves are small. They're they're about one centimeter in diameter and about a centimeter long. So they're not very big. The pellets of the the fuel itself, but how big is a facility? Like, what's your average footprint of a nuclear power plant? Um, it's really measured in acres, and uh, but a lot of the acreage is uh, security boundary areas. So the buildings themselves, well, if you look at it from the outside, it's like, well, this containment building is uh, gigantic. Mm -hmm. In the grand scheme of things, it's a fairly small footprint in terms of how much area it takes up. It's a, it's a pretty condensed area. The, uh, the physical footprint of the plant is, is, is relatively small. Okay. And, you know, talking about size and, you know, where they have to be placed, are there more favorable geographic locations? That's a really good question because I feel like I, I tend to see nuclear plants on coastal regions a lot. Like in California, I remember when I lived there, we would like in San Onofre, there was like that old nuclear power plant there. Like I just, I always, and I, along the coast of California, I seem to always remember them being on the coast for some reason. Is that like a waste thing? Like I, I I'm curious. I think it was a surf, it was San Onofre. It was a surfing thing. They had great <laughs> surfing at that. At that they were all so pissed. They were like, no, don't pollute our waters. And we're like, wait, we're trying not to. <laughs> and we're like, wait, that's not how it works. That's not how it works. 
Well, the, yeah. the, the reason for, well, the, it's a good reason you asked that, that the, 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 you want to put it near a, a large body of water because a body of water is what we call a heat sink. It's an mm -hmm. ultimate heat sink. And so if you're on the ocean, you have all these billions of gallons of water to pump into your plant to cool it. So you can pump uh, cold water in or, or put heat into that uh, ultimate heat sink to cool your plant down. And that, and that doesn't touch that doesn't touch that that water is not made into waste that is Correct. not part of the power production it's part of the cooling it's it's part of the heat rejection process that is inherent with producing electrical power so, so the it's water not a nuclear issue it's okay. not a nuclear issue it, it's it's a it is a uh, power production issue so uh if a, a, a coal plant again they have to they have to get rid of waste heat from a from a coal power plant um we do rely on the the heat sink for our accident analyses we we do have to rely on some place to get rid of heat because uh one thing about a nuclear plant is when it shuts down it's still generating heat even though you've mm -hmm. shut the reactor down the fuel rods will, will remain physically hot and and will continue to generate heat um, over an extended period of time so you have to be able to cool it and so you need to have a uh, a lake or a river or mm. uh, even a large pond where you can uh, transfer the heat out right. and get rid of the heat. And going off what, what Lexi was getting at, nothing about that body of water becomes nuclear waste, correct? Like, correct. I, I think that's a lot of like, um, you know, people's concern when they're living near a nuclear reactor. They, they wonder, and I know people were wondering this in Sano, what happens to like, they they they're, they're curious like is this water now considered nuclear waste is it now polluted in some way no no it was just temporarily warmed by a couple <laughs> degrees and that was that was the extent of it so yeah there no, you have it uh, folks no nothing no to worry about because <laughs> the water that's part of the reaction process is in the containment it's not part of what's coming in and out right. from those bodies of water so correct good good point very and good point you know, going off of geographic locations and water, we do have some facilities that are literally floating nuclear reactors, and those are going to be the, the naval nuclear reactors, right? Well, it's it takes off on the naval nuclear reactor design. Uh, for example, the um, uh, the Russians and the United States, well, particularly the Russians, built uh, um, a lot of nuclear-powered icebreakers uh, to get through their Arctic waters. And so you have this very, uh, very condensed uh, power production facility on a boat, and uh, you can literally take that boat anywhere. And uh, um, so you could take that boat to, um, say, San Diego, pull in, and if you had the proper connections, you could wire the uh, up to the electrical grid and start putting power into the grid or you know some other some other coastal city. So from that ship. From that ship, yeah. So that's the uh, that's one of the new um, I'll call it one of the new reactor types that are being looked at is hey let's have a floating reactor let's bring a floating reactor into Abu Abu Dhabi let's bring a floating reactor into uh, some other coastal area and mm -hmm. pro produce electricity on this floating uh, facility and so that's that's, that's one one way of uh, yeah it's it's a, just a different way of of uh, of getting the power to where it's needed interesting. So going back to, you mentioned fuel rods um, a few moments ago. What what goes into a fuel rod? So I, I imagine it's some sort of mixture 
of nuclear something or another. <laughs> so can you explain what that what that is? Well, there's really two pieces to, to the fuel rod. One is the one is the fuel pellets inside the fuel rod. The fuel right. pellets are where the energy comes from, and that's uh, uh, uranium dioxide is the is the current uh, fuel type that we use in our reactors here, and you know basically in the the commercial nuclear world. Um, and we're looking at ways to improve the the mixture of uranium dioxide and other elements that go into that to try to make those pellets uh, stick together. In a uh, in a more uh, solid fashion, so that you could get them very very hot and they wouldn't break down. So we're looking at different ways of uh, making the fuel pellets uh, more robust, which they're already very robust, but we okay. want to make them even even more uh, resilient. Um, we're also looking at uh, uh, ways to uh, possibly uh, increase the enrichment slightly to get uh, a longer runtime. So instead of running for uh, eighteen months, we could run for twenty four months. That's, that's another thing that's being explored in terms of uh, trying to get that licensed. Um, but uh, th that's the, the, the actual I'll call the fuel aspect of it. The, mm -hmm. the rest of the fuel rod or fuel assembly is typically made out of a zirconium alloy. And zirconium, uh, it doesn't really interact with neutrons. So the neutrons can fly around and do what they need to do inside the reactor. And they don't, the zirconium metal that holds the pellets mm -hmm. together doesn't really interact with the reaction all that much. So um, okay. and it, it provides you a nice rigid, uh, uh, strong structure to hold those pellets together. And again, we're looking at different ways to improve the zirconium uh, mixture to get a, a stronger, more heat resistant, more robust material. So if you did have uh, some kind of an accident that the zirconium wouldn't melt or it would be more resistant towards uh, heat damage and it would hold together and, and give you uh, uh, a better uh, result after some uh, unplanned, uh, unwanted event. Okay. Oh, okay. I, I read in a few places that some reactors rely solely on uranium as their, you know, pellet fuel, but that there are others that use a mixture of uranium and plutonium. Can you talk about first, what kind of uranium we use, um, and actually, I'm going to scratch that. Can you talk about maybe why some of those plants would use plutonium and uranium, and if there's like a benefit of one over the other? Yeah, I mean, inherently, um, in, in the actual uh, process of, of running the reactor, the some of the uranium is converted into plutonium inside the fuel, and then it's, it's in turn uh, actually burned as part of the um, part of the uh, it's burn or we, we call it burn, but it's split. <laughs> it yeah. doesn't actually right. it doesn't actually right. burn up in, in flames. But important uh, distinction. Very, yeah. very <laughs> yes, very very key distinction. Um, but uh, um, what we typically deal with in the United States is a uh, uranium based fuel product. Um, the reason we would want to use plutonium in fuel would be to basically to get rid of surplus uh, weapons plutonium. At one point in the United States, we had a uh, project funded by the Department of Energy to take uh, former Soviet Union plutonium and convert that into a fuel product. They called it MOX, mixed oxide uh, fuel. And then we would in turn put that in our reactors and, and use it as fuel. And it would get rid of the plutonium so you couldn't use it as, as a weapon source anymore and put it to good use, actually make electricity out of it. 
Nuclear <laughs> fission is when you have a very large, unstable nuclei that gets split into two smaller but more stable nuclei. And then fusion is when you have two smaller nuclei that get combined together, but when that happens, it releases a bunch of energy, as I understand. Right. Yes. Absolutely. And what we use now in our nuclear reactors is fission. And fusion would basically be the ultimate goal of nuclear power because you'd have no waste, you could right? Get it. Well, if you could, if you could get it to stabilize, you would have a star. So you'd have something that's like forever, yeah, yeah, creating energy. But it's really difficult. Where are we on that, John? <laughs> where, where, where is the U.S. pioneering on that research? Well, it's funny you ask because we've been five to ten years away for the last fifty years. Uh, so. <laughs> like just five more years. Hang on, we'll have our um, own star. We'll call it. Yeah. John Star. Oh, I like that. <laughs> sound, that sounds too close to On Star. I'm it has a really good <laughs> ring to it. <laughs> but now there's much more interest in fusion now than there was uh, uh, ten or, or even twenty years ago. Um, uh, more more people are looking into it. More companies and startups are looking into it. Um, certainly, if if you could find a way to confine the plasma um, for an extended period of time. That is that is the solution to the to the and problem. And does that work. does that have better? Um, well, how do I phrase this? What's what are what are the what's the difference between um, nuclear waste and fission and fusion? Is it the same, or do you kind of eliminate the waste factor altogether with fusion? It, it's not a total elimination, but it is it is a uh, it is a, a reduction okay. of of the waste. Uh, the the big thing with fusion is just the uh, the availability of the fuel the uh, the tritium there's so much tritium uh, out there that could be used as fuel um, that it's just it would basically be a, a, a limitless supply of fuel now there are some other um, fusion efforts that are looking at uh, lithium elements so there's lithium elements on the moon that might be able to be used but really it's you know tritium is the that is the fuel that you would want to duh i knew that tritium obviously uh that is the first that might be the first time i'm actually getting this much of an analysis into it like duh obviously (laughs) lithium so last season bro come on tritium let's go we won't even get into the issues of mining on other planets and the oh, rights geez. to who has what and all that other bullshit. But okay. before, so we can, Lex, before we get into um, talking about advantages and disadvantages, do you mind if I, if I ask the question? Um, John, do you know roughly what percent of the U.S. energy comes from nuclear it is still approximately twenty percent, even though we have uh, we have uh, retired several uh, nuclear power plants over the last few years. Um, we still get about twenty percent of our uh, electrical power from uh, nuclear. So power. that's that's twenty percent total electricity is coming from nuclear. Yes. That is wow. That's actually pretty surprising to me. I don't know nuclear, why. It that actually already transitions us really well into one of the advantages. Um, of nuclear power and you and I uh, talked about it earlier actually, which is how reliable 
the energy source is because it can right. operate at basically full capacity, like we said, for more than 90% of like time. Like time that it's running, it's operating at full capacity like 90, 92% of the time. That's and great. that's way more reliable than any other source we currently have in the States because they the the plants operate for about 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So you have people on staff constantly. Yeah, the, the goal, they, they call it breaker to breaker operation. They When they... Uh, when they restart a, a, a nuclear power plant, they really, when they close that breaker to the grid and start putting power into the grid, they want to run nonstop until they have to physically shut down because they just don't have enough fuel to sustain the reaction anymore. And that's mm -hmm. typically either 18 or 24 months that they want to, that's, that's the goal. Now, if they, obviously, if they run into a problem, if there's a, a mechanical problem that needs to be repaired or something, they'll, they'll shut down or they'll reduce power to make a repair. But the, the, the reliability is, is enormous. I mean, they're just, uh, we've gotten so much better as an, as an industry at being able to do these breaker to breaker runs or do these you know, extended runs at, at full power um, which is uh, you know, a real benefit because we're yeah. constantly making baseload electricity. Right. And we talked about that um, in our fossil fuel episode. We were talking we about baseload and we probably will talk about it a few more times in this series because that's like... That's a very core element to powering the grid, right? Right. Okay. But circling back to what we had um, mentioned with the inspections... This is a really regulated field um, and the NRC, which is the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, they are a public federal regulator and you work with them a lot. Yes. Yeah, we interact with them regularly. And uh, uh, again, we <laughs> we try to make sure that, that their life is easier because that makes our life easier if we're mm -hmm. uh, open and transparent with them in our uh, transactions. And, uh, you know, if they uh, tell us that we need to provide something, then we try to provide that information to them as best we can so that they can make decisions. And again, uh, their responsibility and our responsibility is the same. It's we're to protect the, the health and safety of the public. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, that's very important. That's you know, when you get a license to operate one of these facilities, that's at the top of your hierarchy. Uh, making electricity is, is nice, but protecting the health and safety of the public is always number one. And that's something that our industry constantly drills into us that, you know, that we, we are there uh, to, to be safe first and then produce electricity second. So. Priorities. Do you feel like, yeah. Do you feel <laughs> like that's a, because you, you've been in the industry for a very, very long time, longer than I've existed and probably hey, hey, longer than hey. I've even been a thought. Don't date John. He doesn't need to be dated right now. But do you think that this attitude um, has changed since, you know, accidents like Three Mile Island? And Ooh. could you speak a little bit about what happened there and the transformations that might have come from it? That's a good question. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, Three Mile Island was a was a actually probably a, a, a real plus for the industry because it was a real it was a slap across the face. It was a wake up call. And uh, after that happened, um the, the U.S. industry really realized, hey, we have to get serious about this in terms of training and uh, just how we do our day-to-day -day business. And so uh, Institute of Nuclear Power Operations came out of that. Um, that's an organization that that tries to promote um, the 
the, the safe operation and best practices for, for nuclear power plants. Uh, the NRC uh, came up with a whole bunch of new uh, regulations and rules uh, as a result of that. So the, 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 it got much stricter. The bar got much, uh, much higher in terms of being able to cross it in terms of uh, you know, what, what you have to, to do uh, mm-hmm. as, a, as a licensee to, to run these facilities. And, uh, you know, that's even today, I mean, uh, we still have to live to rules that came out of the Three Mile Island accident. And, uh, you know, that's it's a it's been a benefit to the industry because it's, it made us much better. And it was a, it was definitely a learning experience. Uh, it, it hurt badly in terms of public perception. I mean, that, that was a huge, huge blow in terms of public perception. But for the industry, it probably saved us in the long term in terms of, you know, we we really um, were able to, to come out of that with a, a much better uh, sense of what we needed to do to operate safely. I totally resonate with what you said about how it really shifted public perception of nuclear energy. Um, I feel like in, um, incidents like Three Mile Island or even Fukushima, we we think about um, a lot of the, the in the public eye, whenever they hear the, like I said this earlier, whenever they hear nuclear energy, they kind of cringe and they freak out a little bit because they're, they're just unsure. Can you explain what actually happened at, at Three Mile Island though? What caused the the meltdown? Yeah, it was actually a combination of of errors. It was it was some operator error. It was some uh, actual like physical um, misalignment of indications that mm-hmm. led to the operators misdiagnosing what was actually happening, and so they were basically set up to fail <laughs> when that <laughs> when the event occurred. So you know between you know a, a physical problem of a valve sticking open and the operators not realizing what was going on, it led to a loss of uh, coolant in, in the core. And so when water was reintroduced into the core of the reactor, it caused the core to basically to, to come apart. It crumbled into you know, many, many small pieces and uh, ruined the core. So it was a, it was really the loss of an asset. The, the, you know, the facility was no longer able to be used after that was done in terms of the impact you know, the perception was, you know, uh, fear in the public's mind, but in terms of what was actually released out into the environment, it was, you know, very minimal impact uh, from that perspective. But oh, the, okay. the, the damage, yeah, the damage was more psychological and, and in terms of uh, to the public's perception of the industry. Right. Um, the, the containment did what it was supposed to do and, and you know, it, it held the... Uh, uh, held the material within the containment area, so it really you know, prevented a, a widespread release of, of material that radioactive. Would, uh, yeah, yeah. So there were you know there were minimal consequences in terms of what was well, released I, out of the plant. I guess in a way, it in in that way, it sort of um, did its job in minimizing the radioactive yeah. waste that could have been associated. Yes, yes, that's that's why we have containments for our plants in the United mm. States. Um, unfortunately, Chernobyl did not have a containment, oh. and so when the Chernobyl accident happened, they had uh, nothing to prevent the release of material. It was uh, it's a devastating uh, it was, uh, yeah. incident. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very, very, very bad design. <laughs> and I will say, you know, just as a disclaimer to our listeners out there, none of us are in public health or health related doctors of any sort um we're just chatting (laughs) so if anyone has some qualms about you know 
radioactive material in the environment in general and the effects of it. We hear you, we, res we respect that that is an issue, but we are not going to get into that on this conversation. I like just that. figured I'd just point that out too. Just, you know, we're not, we're not trying to avoid it, but we are not experts in that sense. I don't think it'd be appropriate no. to speak on it. I can see but, our DMs exploding. I know. <laughs> you idiots. Blah, blah, blah. Like, well, okay. Well. <laughs> but it is interesting to note um, the difference between the Chernobyl not having yeah. a containment and being yeah. completely devastated versus Three Mile Island because people still live in that area and does that plant because that plant had what three towers or two three uh potentially more for for chernobyl oh no, sorry three mile island three oh, mile island oh. has it, it was one it was one of the units it was um one out of how many one out of two units okay oh yeah. okay i'm yeah. looking at pictures and i th i thought i saw three in this one yeah and it kind of like there's three there you're challenging my memory here, but I, I want to say <laughs> maybe you're right. Yeah, this. I mean, I'm looking at Google, so you're remembering from when it actually happened. One, one of one of two units was was uh, was uh, damaged in that accident. Wow. The other the other unit continued to run until just a few years ago when they they shut down and okay. decommissioning. Well, that's it. so the Three Mile Island happened. Do you know? Do you remember what year that happened? April 1979. <laughs> so it operated from 79 until just a couple of years ago, even with the meltdown having occurred. Which oh. another, you know, another disclaimer. I know that there are, uh, if anyone is listening from that area and has issues with the plant having been there, we would love for you to reach out to us and give us your perspective as well. Um, that would be interesting. Oh, yeah. That would be cool. Get some people coming in from ground kind of a perspective but um aside from those two accents we also had the fukushima meltdown and that one was completely different than the first two because that was caused by an external factor not an internal one. Oh, yeah fukushima was was interesting in in the fact that it was a beyond design basis event um and, and partly the uh, Partly uh, some man-made contributors because there there was a uh, there was a seawall or a, a barrier um, offshore that uh, could have helped to uh, divert some of the water that actually flooded the the facility, but they uh, they cut a, a notch in this wall to access the plant. So if you had a V notch and a nice little channel for water to flow through, so that that didn't help matters when the when the tsunami hit, um, but. Uh, what we learned from Fukushima was that even though you, you you can design a plant for what you think is going to be the worst case event, something could always come along that you never thought about or, or didn't predict. And so for those beyond design basis types of events, um, what we as an industry did was uh, we came up with um, procedures and, and uh, uh different ways of thinking of, okay, how do I, how do I accomplish core cooling if I lose all my power and all my pumps and I don't mm -hmm. have anything available? How do I put water into the core to keep things cool and to maintain the, you know, safe configuration? And so uh, we spent several years working on uh, enhanced procedures and actually put some different connections at different points in the system that if you did lose all of your normal and all of your backup uh, safety systems, that you could come in with a temporary hookup and be able to connect power or connect water 
and uh, reestablish cooling and reestablish safety systems. Mm -hmm. And we also established a couple um, mutual um, uh, equipment areas, staging areas in the country. I think there's one in, I believe it's Phoenix, and the other one is uh, in uh, Tennessee, I believe. But uh, those areas have uh, equipment that could be mobilized rapidly and within 24 hours could be sent anywhere in the country. And that would provide That's... pumps and power supplies and other things to uh, help mitigate any kind of extreme event that uh, could happen at one of the facilities. It's very, very clear that we've uh, we've really adopted a learning culture. What countries actually mine uranium and what kind of, well, obviously it has value. I'm not like asking what kind of value does it have? I'm asking, how does that compare to a country that, for example, is a mass, like as a producer of oil? It's its value is now seen more, I guess, in terms of political considerations mm -hmm. where a few years ago um, you could get uranium from sources that today you might not want to necessarily do business with that particular country mm -hmm. uh, for political reasons. Uh -huh. um, but, domestic uh, <laughs> pr production of, of energy. I always say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> domestic production is always is always good from a national perspective. Yeah, that's that's a or or you know a a, a reliable ally that you can uh, obtain. Your, I know Canada's uh, on the list. I don't think Canada's they're going anywhere. <laughs> Australia. Australia <laughs> is a, a solid pal. It's the In Russia. The it's the Russians that are. I don't know how. Uh, that's a very. Uh, tainted relationship i'll say i mean they're still they're still willing to sell it to of course uh, countries but other countries might not be as uh receptive towards purchasing it at this point but that's, understood uh, understood and the u.s produces a little we we do we do produce a little uh we could probably produce more i think steps are being taken to try to increase domestic production um i just feel like everyone yeah, in, in the u.s is just in bed with fossil fuel they're not even trying <laughs> Well, everyone, everyone is so oil backed. So I don't know. Yeah. That could that could yeah. be a fallacy. It's, I'm not. Obviously, it's twenty percent of our and demand. It's, it's a supply and demand yeah. and and cost of cost of doing business uh, equation. I mean, if you can, I think that everybody just got into the habit of you know if you can obtain it somewhere relatively cheaply, just you know I'll buy it from you know I'll go down to store X instead of you know going to the mom and pop store downtown and sure. get it from a local provider. So store yeah. X that's, that's going to be Lexi and I's new, new business endeavor. Uh, yeah. Store, I don't, TM. store X TM. Yeah. I, I don't want to, I don't want to demean any of the uh, big box stores, but we've covered quite a few advantages, you know, aside from the fact of the energy created being carbon free, the plant life, the fact that this is an industry that can't just sweep mistakes under the rug <coughs> fossil fuels <coughs> um and it's it's it is able to provide some power independence well and but... there's there's also sorry to interrupt there's also the no, point that it. we have we have a lot of um we have a lot of potential with the fusion breakthrough now too to right. have a really reliable stable nearly abundant infinite amount of energy that could come from a reaction like that essentially having a star in the local in the local like a nuclear YMCA. Uh, plant. yeah um so yeah there there are, we there are definitely tons of advantages we've we've covered 
And I, I can think of two more. And the, the first one is the pilot plant efforts, because it's not, aside from them learning from mistakes, they're also trying, from what I understand, to spearhead new initiatives to continue to be competitive and also do the best work they can to make use of their facilities. So can you talk a little bit about some of those pilot plant efforts? Yeah, one of the one of the things that we're looking at as an industry is um, uh, for those plants that, that might not necessarily um, have a market for or a need for the baseload electricity um, to instead use some of their uh, thermal and electrical capabilities to produce um, other products and, you know, instead of producing basal electricity, a plant could, for example, produce large amounts of hydrogen gas, or they could produce uh, desalinated water. So those are some of the things we're looking at in terms of, you know, hey, if the, if the grid doesn't need, you know, all of my power today, I could make this other product instead, still continue to operate, you know, near capacity, you know, continuous operations and make, you know, full use of my uh, output potential and still produce a product that the public needs. And, you know, in the case of hydrogen, um, the thought was maybe to scale that uh, and locate that near an existing industry that could use the hydrogen uh, for some specific industrial purpose, or you know, obviously the desalinization would be in a coastal area um, that, uh, maybe had uh, freshwater issues, um, so you could produce large amounts of uh, clean potable water for uh, for use for domestic use for uh, coastal areas. So those mm -hmm. are some some of the things we're looking at to try to mm -hmm. be a little bit more flexible in terms of you know what what we can do in terms of uh, uh, reliable output and to to make full use of our capacity. I feel like that's pretty. Uh, it's not as altruistic as I'd like it. <laughs> to actually be but i mean i think everybody could agree getting some more potable water is definitely a benefit certainly water is a very valuable resource and becoming increasingly so as we as we continue to extract and pollute <laughs> so um yeah are there any other advantages we can think of before we move on to disadvantages yeah, the last one that I can think of is how dense nuclear fuel is. So once the uranium pellets um, are actually spent, you can take all of the used nuclear fuel pr produced in the U.S. over the last 60 years and fit it on a football field at a at a depth of less than 10 yards. I mean, obviously, it's it's radioactive and you need the facility to be able to continue, continue to cool it. But in terms of um, disposal... I think that that is a benefit. That sounds yeah, pretty it cool. Yeah, <laughs> it is. A, it is a very dense power source. Um, you don't need barge loads of, of coal. You don't need, um, you know, a pipeline of natural gas coming in constantly to feed the power plant. You basically truck in the assemblies that you need for the next refueling outage. And uh, when you do your... Uh, your refueling outage, you take about a third of the core out, put that in your storage pool and let it cool for a, a number of years until mm -hmm. you can put that into dry storage. So it, it is a it is a very condensed power source, um, which 
is nice because again, you don't have to have the continuous stream of material coming into your plant to burn. It's a uh, right. uh, very, very, uh, very limited amounts of material shipped in to, to sustain the uh, operation. I see that as a huge advantage. Um, in the uh, in the coming episodes, we're going to talk about other types of energy, and always an advantage is if it can take up less space. Um, yeah. I know, for example, we'll talk about biofuel, biomass, bioenergy later this season. And one of the disadvantages is as at at present we're using so much space to to um for to make biomass essentially um and you know there are there are other there are other um energy sources that also require a lot of space even i mean even if you're looking at the fossil fuel industry we have to span fracking endeavors over huge amounts of space like and even the the waste associated and like for, for example in and biomass as well, a lot of that's going ending up in landfills. So, yeah. which also takes up a lot of space. So I see that as a huge, huge advantage. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, and we talked about it at the beginning of the episode in terms of footprint, the plants are usually really large, but that's not because the plant itself is large. It's, you know, you want to give yourself some breathing room between where the plant is located and then mm-hmm. what people can actually access. Because right. from what I understand, you can't just walk on, on site <laughs> with, yeah with a driver's license and asked to be let in. So it's, uh, Hello, I'm here to see the, the nuclear, <laughs> the nuclear fission reaction. Hello. I would like a tour of your facilities, please. They're like, get the fuck out. Who are you? <laughs> no, no intruders. What about disadvantages? There are a few as, uh, as of like at, at present, there are a few. Yeah. That we're yeah, working right. toward, I'm sure. Right now, I think that probably the two biggest disadvantages. Number one is that it's the it's the cost and time to construct uh, the new okay. facilities. Um, again, because it is highly regulated and and uh, the construction process has to meet all of the requirements. Um, mm-hmm. All you know, the design must match the construction, and if there's a difference, then that slows you down. So <laughs> until that's resolved. So it's a you know very tedious, uh, very tedious, very very costly um, uh, process to build them. Once you have it built and you begin to operate it, again there there are some there are some operating costs. You have to fuel it. The you know, the, the fuel is not free. Um, mm-hmm. You also have to have security um, to protect the facility. Right. Unfortunately, we have to have you know, very large amounts of security no field trips allowed to see the nuclear fission reaction exactly exactly <laughs> no no uh no uh un, un, uh scheduled guests allowed i'm sure um, i'm sure a lot of people are curious about the the waste disposal issue um not so much because there is an actual issue there necessarily as we've talked about there's not a lot of waste really associated as if the if the can the um containment is operating properly but as a social political issue how can we how can we address the public and help clear the air a little bit on this on this issue yeah we you you nailed it i mean the the waste issue is it's not a technical issue it's not a health issue it's 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 purely a a a political and cultural issue um, people don't want 
waste material in their backyard and they don't want it they don't want it near them even though um you know you could literally walk up to a dry storage cask and you know drink your cup of coffee in the morning and you know talk to your your buddy across standing by the other storage cask and you you wouldn't be physically harmed by that Mm -hmm. proximity but it's the the perception is is one of uh um of danger or of hazard. And uh, really that's it, kind of sad because, you know, our, our outlook as a culture is so short lived. It's, it's based on hours, days, weeks, maybe, but the material that we're calling waste, the, the spent fuel that, that is uh, currently stored on site at these facilities um, in a number of decades, that material will, would actually be potentially a, a source of fuel for another reactor design. There are there are designs for reactors out there that are being looked wow. at that would that would take this used material that we consider a, a waste and that people look at as being a hazard, but it could be uh, really a, a great resource for uh, new reactor designs. That, you know, not not the ones we currently have. It would it would be a different design, but uh, that that waste material could be recycled into a, a form that uh, I could be used for making power again. I had absolutely no idea we were working. That's amazing that we were working toward that. Wow. That's, that's really cool to totally so, so, like to totally repurpose the, the nuclear waste. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, that's a, that, that's a really elegant thought um, to, to get rid of it uh, or at least to, to use it again. And then, uh, after the maybe the second or third run through, then you know possibly think of how to permanently dispose of it or permanently right. store it. Uh, how are we? It, so you said that we're storing it on site right now. That's the only way. We're not putting it anywhere anywhere else. I know people make jokes about putting it in space or the ocean. What's what are what are the <laughs> what are the the waste disposal protocols once we do classify it as waste and spent fuel? Right now, there there are none. Um, as as a country, we we uh, at one point we're going to consolidate it all and put it in uh, the side of a mountain out in Nevada. Um, that has since fallen through. <laughs> there's I I don't believe that will ever happen. Now um, there's talk about taking uh, the fuel from all the individual sites that it's at now. And putting it into a centralized uh, location somewhere else, maybe you know, maybe Texas, maybe some other location. Um, again, it's it's a, a political and cultural issue that you know, people don't want this material near where they live. It's viewed as a, a you know a, a negative uh, a negative asset to the community. Well, I think we need to positive. get in touch with the people who are doing the marketing campaigns for fossil fuel because <laughs> they seem to have nailed it. How to how we can all cohabitate mm-hmm. with that toxic mm-hmm. shit. So I'm so maybe, glad you said that. Art. I literally was sitting here thinking because it's like I, I am not saying that radiation is safe by any stretch of the imagination. Like getting unnecessary X rays, MRIs, whatever can pose a risk to your health. However, but the technology it contains me. it. Yeah. Right, but also it floors me that we coexist so happily with fossil fuels. But time and time again, we have seen that they actively have horrible, if not worse, health risks as they are currently used than any other fuel source, including, as we currently use it, the nuclear 
power. So we've talked about waste disposal. Lag time. Social. We've talked about lag time. We've talked about the costs. Any other associated disadvantages with nuclear energy? I mean, I think I know the one that people are going to want to talk about, and that's weapons proliferation. Oh, baby. <laughs> yeah, again, that's, to, to me, the, the weapons proliferation issue. I mean, I, I'm used to the, the structure here in the United States of, of regulations and oversight that really wouldn't allow for that. But, I, you know, I, I can see why... Um, you know, in other countries, they might not have that that kind of regulatory structure, and there would be a concern about uh, taking the the used uh, nuclear fuel and trying to uh, produce uh, weapons from that essentially waste material. How do we prevent that from happening in the U.S.? Like, you can't just take the fuel and make a weapon with it, right? Correct. So- yeah, yeah. That's you have to. I mean, it's a it's a physical process of taking the the used fuel, cutting it up, dissolving it, separating it into different materials, and then, you know, from there diverting the uh, either plutonium. Well, the uranium is so uh, is so depleted that the uranium is not really a, a viable yeah. uh, weapon source. But there is plutonium. However, the plutonium that you get out of a commercial reactor is what we would call reactor grade. It's not weapons grade. It's it's uh, it has other uh, isotopes of plutonium that really wouldn't make it a good weapon per se. Um, you can make a dirty bomb out of it, but uh, dirty bomb. Yeah, sorry, that sounds like sounds like the name of a song or like a B-rate movie. <laughs> yeah, dirty bomb. But I mean, it's in ter- but in terms of uh, you using it for weapons, eh, it's it's not really. If you're going to make a weapon, you're gonna you're gonna want to uh, design your weapons program just to make weapons grade material. You're not gonna. Well, you're duh. not going to take. Yeah, you're not. You're not going to. You're not going to go. You know, try to skirt uh, skirt a couple of assemblies out of a. Oh, John's know, got a dark weapon. side. He's like, if you're going to make a weapon, make it the right way. And and they are uh, they are self protecting too. That's one thing. You don't just put one in the in the trunk of your car or in the back of your pickup and drive off site with it. Oh, really? So. I have a couple. <laughs> oh shit! I better watch it. National security is going to be knocking my door. Uh, bitch, what Ari, Ari pulls talking? out. Ari pulls out her notepad, scratches off by pickup. <laughs> yeah, and 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 then <laughs> and then they they look deeper and they see that I'm a dual citizen of Iran, and they're like, okay, this girl. Oh, 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 this girl's this girl's trouble. Yikes! Oh, I'm sweating. That's that's funny. Well, you know, and that's a big part of it. I mean, if you're talking about weapons proliferation risk, you really do have to talk about well, what country are you looking at? Because if you're looking at how the U.S. uses nuclear fuel for, you know, like the type of nuclear fuel that they're using, and then you look at the type of fuel you would need for creating a weapon, they are not the same. But if you have a country or a nation or an entity in general that doesn't give a rat's patootie about the type of (laughs) grade they're producing, they could be making it for the purpose of reusing it for other systems. So when you're talking about weapons proliferation, (laughs) Jesus Christ, (laughs) it's more of a a where are you concerned and not a what are you concerned, right? Yeah, I I think that's a fair statement. And, uh, you know, the the International Atomic Energy Agency, IAEA, they they have oversight of... uh, 
programs you know, worldwide, basically. Now, there's some states that are not members of that organization, but um, you know, for the member states, you know, we have to meet their right. requirements in terms of you know, how we account for all this material and where it's located. And, you know, it's, it's basically an accounting system. You have uh, uh, books that show where everything is and you maintain those those ledgers and, and shows yeah. where all the material is stored right. at. I do have another question, John, just really quick. I really hope you are not the one to teach Lexi how to say rats patootie. <laughs> I I don't know where she picked that up from, but I sincerely hope it's not from John because I'm about to roast the both of you. <laughs> Lexi, what the fuck does that even yeah. mean? Yeah, my, my version that's a little more vulgar. I, I know. I'm like, just say, just say it. Just say ass. We're explicit here. It's fine. Ari's like that actually I took it, I took it to a level that this podcast is not rated for. <laughs> like what is that? Like negative G? Like, how do you get lower than G? Rats patootie. Anyway, sorry to digress, but Jesus. Uh, All right. The pre-K version. Yeah. <laughs> what about the mining uranium problem? Are there problems associated with it? I should rephrase that question. Are there problems associated with mining uranium? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, um, like any mining endeavor there you know you have your obviously your risks of mining collapse and whatnot you also have uh, inherent with uranium is the the decay products the natural products that come mm -hmm. from uranium uh, are radioactive it's it's just what mother nature gave us right. in terms of how, how you go from uranium to something that's that's no longer radioactive and so you have these various uh decay products that are inherently are associated with uranium that that could cause a health hazard by uh, you know being in proximity being in a mine with with that material so right. yeah there has to be controls on it uh, I, I'm not an expert on uh, the uranium mining process but I know just from uh, just from uh, the little uh, trace amounts of uranium that are in the soil and the earth, um, just the, the radon issue that you would have in many areas of, of the United States. And that's just simply from natural decay of uranium that produces these right. materials. So that has right. to be has to be monitored, has to be controlled in terms of being able to handle it safely. Right. We got to get the robots in there once we get it. Yeah. <laughs> the only other um, disadvantage that I feel is we haven't really touched on um, is the carbon equivalent emissions and air pollution aspect, because there is no such thing as a zero or close to zero emission um, with basically any kind of facility because humans create emissions. But although the energy we produce is clean, actually getting the products to create the energy isn't the cleanest of processes. Yeah, I mean, there, there's no, there's really no energy source that is you know, totally devoid of of emissions. Um, you know, even to produce like uh, solar panels or wind turbines, there's there's an associated uh, uh, cost in terms of uh, the uh, emissions that are required to uh, to achieve that energy source. And fusion power would be would be the same as well. You would still have to do some uh, consolidation and concentration of uh, the fuel to make. Uh, to make the fusion 
uh, power source. So that's uh, that would be in the same boat. But again, it's you know compared to uh, taking uh, a carbon product out of the ground and burning Heck, it, yeah. Um, yeah. it's it's much much less in terms of the uh, the overall impact of emissions. So oh, definitely, we we say that every time. It's like yeah, there's emissions associated. There may be you know there may be emissions associated with different types of renewable energy but we and we do have to mention it here just to point mm -hmm. out like okay it's not like nothing's completely you know clean zero or perfect yeah but i mean compared to the method we've been using since the industrial revolution yeah <laughs> i mean there's just no comparison there's no comparison especially when you and have a population of this size i mean in yeah the 1800s when we were starting to um, transition to fossil fuel use it just doesn't even compare it doesn't even compare we need it's required we transition to something that has less emissions like it's right less emissions and also a higher capacity which i feel like brings us to wrapping up what our thoughts our summary our final conclusion or, or whatever at this point because when it comes to choosing a fuel source for our energy or just picking an energy source in general we need to really reconcile in way the the costs versus the benefits and i personally think that fossil fuels cost benefit analysis is shite <laughs> i don't it's not it's not sustainable See, she, she can she can she has it in her i knew she i have it in me i have it in me you know it the the mining process the the retrieval the burning it's not sustainable it's not healthy it's not good for anybody or anything like it does not make sense. And especially when you when you keep in mind the fact that not only is our population still growing, but we have nations that are developing. And when you have a developed versus an undeveloped, you increase your energy need. So with all these places that are inevitably trying to better themselves, which we are in full support of, you know, we want humans to live happy, healthy lives. And usually that comes along with some developments, you're going to need more energy. There, There is no scenario where we don't need more energy unless some crazy fucking plague comes and wipes out half the population. Oh, no, no, no. I, I, you know, my, like, my hunch is definitely the Thanos conception. He's going to come down, yeah. he's going to snap his fingers, half of us are going to disappear. But I don't think the number of people on this planet is the problem. I think the problem is the fact that the people on this planet refuse to help themselves. Agreed. Like, like when my, like <laughs> when John was talking earlier about, we have this mindset of right now or in a couple of years, like if we were able to adopt, not even if, but when, once we finally get out of our own ways and are able to have more of a futuristic sense of self, like, Okay, how do I be how do I best prepare for the future? It'll make our everyday lives better. Well, yeah, I I completely agree. I know I make jokes about overpopulation, but I I definitely don't think that that's the biggest environmental crisis at the moment. Right. I think that I've I've brought this up a few times in season one. It's the concept of long termism, right? It's the concept right. that you know. Um, where is the responsibility for future generations? Um, biologically, we 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 have one. <laughs> like you have to, 
for to for the survival of your species um but even if even if not like there there has to be like we are responsible for the livelihood of those people right now um yeah. and overpopulate like like you said it's it's more about the 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 approach to okay how do we make that life as best as we can yeah and it's not about stop making babies that's not what it is it's about yeah it's about if you have options if you if there are ways if there are routes to limit our consumption reduce emissions make the air and the world cleaner for people in the future and have a more stable source of energy why why wouldn't we do it like yeah yeah i don't i definitely don't think overpopulation is the big is the, is the issue um i mean obviously it's not like earth can hold an, exponent, an exponential growth of, Number. of humans but like yeah so we're gonna you know we're saying? not gonna have a whole lot of elbow room at some point <laughs> excuse me <laughs> but I think you know all that being said I've always I think I was born to be pro-nuclear but I <laughs> knowing the, the what I know reveal, now, the big reveal everyone what I know now I definitely here. I I yeah I think all three of us in this conversation are are pro-nuclear especially in in terms of how it's regulated in the United yes. States, I think it is an awesome option for for producing energy. I'm really excited about the potential that these plants' lives have, maybe yep. even post energy production. Yep. Um, what we can repurpose them for, and sure. I really am excited to see what we end up doing with them in the future. As am I, and the research that is to come. As I mean, we like we've talked about, there was a big breakthrough in infusion this year. Yep. Um, in the last oh. month or so, and um, uh, we've we've talked about fission as a being a pretty stable source of energy even now. Even mm -hmm. I know there's room for improvement, but yeah, always room for improvement. I'm I'm excited too. I'm excited to see where it goes. Um, John, any closing <laughs> thoughts you. for us and the listeners? Well, the you know, the the thought the thought years ago was uh, that someday there would be uh, uh, electrical power so abundant that uh it was too cheap to meter was the expression and and part of that theory was that you would transition from this abundant source of uh, fission uh, nuclear power that we were talking about on this episode and ultimately transition to this even more abundant supply of uh, fusion power and uh i hope that uh i live long enough to at least see the fusion power aspect of it become a you know, a, a real viable source of electricity, because I think that would be a, a real bonus to future generations. But in the in the meantime, in the interim, however long that is, whether that's five years or, or another 50 years, I, I think, uh, you know, the, uh, the fission power that, that we talked about is, is still a, a, a great source and a great yeah. asset uh, for uh, for society. So thank you. Yeah, thank you so much thank for coming you. on. We appreciate you Thanks. taking the time to do it was, this. It was a pleasure. It was yes. My first podcast, so I really thank enjoyed you it. so much. You were great. You were built for this. Um, yeah, <laughs> I, I'm built to sit in the chair. <laughs> I know that we've had. I, I've been had the pleasure of spending a lot of time with the both of you, and we've had conversations about, you know, the Middle East. We've had conversations about gun control we've had conversations about lexi's poor choice of curse words but this <laughs> was the first time we were able to sit down and finally talk about what you're passionate about and nuclear energy yeah. and i've learned so much from this conversation so thank you for taking the time okay. i know it's hard to sit next to lexi for that long <laughs>
Yeah, I don't smell the greatest, uh, so it's. But we, but we have my administrative staff in here, all left, all five of them right now. So yeah, <laughs> they're keeping us in Mom. check. <laughs> well, yeah, for, um, we're very excited to say that we had our first live audience for this recording. Uh, it consisted of three dogs and two cats. Hey, my that's... my dad's administrative assistants, folks. But anyway, thank you, thank you both, thank you, John, for joining us. Um, and we hope people learned as much as we did. Yeah, for sure. And as always, please like, follow, subscribe, leave us a review, let us know what you think. And again, if you live near a nuclear facility, if you have an interest in nuclear energy, or if you just have general questions that you would like us to try and plug to my dad, let us fucking know, and we will do our best to answer. Ciao, guys. All right, folks. Asa la pizza. Right. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye.